This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 21st of June 2016, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data. My name is Jon, and as always, here's my co-host Dave. Hi Dave, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. And you? I'm perfect, I'm fine. I'm doing a podcast, that always makes me happy. Absolutely. So what have you been up to the last couple of weeks? Uh, so, yet more telco security. Um, Not again. Yeah, afraid so. Um, yeah, continues. The the project continues. The breadth of the conversation and depth of the conversations continue. All good though. Um, you know, sort of emerging out of basic platform security now, and we're very much into you know the interaction between governance and security and tagging of data and how that all works together and third-party ISV applications to to uh, take part in that process as well and. All that kind of good stuff. So, yep, continuing down that uh, that journey, but all very positive. Uh, just not to confuse our listeners, the reason that you're talking about telco security all the time, not banking and insurance security, is because that's your type of customer, right? It is indeed. That is very much my type of customer. Um, and so it had a sort of a very interesting kind of senior exec meeting as well, um, where they were sort of outlining some of their core big data strategy over the next 12 months and, you know, asking for our opinion on certain things and a bit of, a uh, bit of brainstorming going on as well. And, and just, uh, some, some really interesting things, uh, happening, obviously can't, uh, can't talk anything, uh, any detail about it, but it's, it's really interesting that once people sort of get over the initial, um, you know, fear of, of complexity of big data. Some of the ideas that people come up with, um, you know, in terms of you know, future revenue streams and that sort of thing, you know, can be really, really interesting. So I guess the, the overall message from that would be don't, uh, you know, don't let some of the, uh, um, some of the technology dis- um, disturb you from just completely thinking out of the box and thinking about completely different ways of uh, whether it's generating revenue or saving money. Big data is uh, definitely a very powerful tool for doing both of those things. Yeah, they're very much still tools, right? They're not solutions. They're tools oh, you yeah. have to employ to solve your problems and make your new whatever it is you're trying to do. Yeah, very much so. It's a platform. Um, it's, not a, it's not an out-of-the-box solution. That's what makes it exciting. Indeed. Um uh, also working on an RFI for uh, or helping out and working on an RFI uh, for a European energy company. Uh, RFIs, um, every pre-sales person's uh, absolute favorite use of time. Wouldn't you agree, <laughs> Well, I'm happily in my new job. I'm kind of leaving those things a bit behind. I'm doing a bit more of the technical stuff now. But uh, now requests for information is that usually answering the questions where in the end the answers tell the customer that that's not exactly what they were looking for in the first place. Yeah, I think they're just they're a necessary evil of the IT industry. It's just the way it is. Well, it does help us pre-sales guys to just uh, dig into some stuff we may not ever look at otherwise, just to round out our, I don't know, knowledge, I guess. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Be positive. Yeah. Anyway. Um, it's still, the whole RFI of beating, it's it's a leftover from the olden days when you had the five, oh, ten-year yeah. plans, right? These days, yeah. by the time the RFI is written, the RFP should have already been done, and it's too late to do anything with it. 
Yeah, well, by the time the RFI has been uh, complete, the RFI and the RFP have been completed, and the solutions been selected, the technology's moved on, so all the answers that were given were irrelevant. So, yeah, yeah, it's uh, definitely a legacy of a bygone era. But uh, you know, people need a way of comparing technologies, and the RFI still seems to be the default method of doing that for a lot of large slow organizations although i do have seen the tendency of uh, companies trying to reform the rfi into getting some kind of a free training session out of it <laughs> yeah yeah using using rfis as um as just the ability to suck knowledge out of organizations yeah. the thing is you say that but at the same time um some of the rfis are just getting so large that i i really do I really do wonder on the other side of the fence whether they actually are able to even digest them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, organizations are going out to, you know, 12, 15 different organizations to answer uh, an RFI or RFP, and you get back, you know, a 30, 40 page document and a, you know, billion row spreadsheet. Are you, you know, are they actually able to really consume all of that information? My view is probably not. Yeah, probably. Um, you know, having been on the other side of this um, and being sort of part of an organisation, um, actually respond. Uh, you know, putting those things out there and reading them. The, the the kind of golden rule we always had was to keep the keep the responses not um, keep the responses limited to the areas that we that we knew there was differentiation, and you know, trying not not trying to trip people up, but just you always have certain things that you want to know. Don't. Don't spend your time trying to boil the ocean with an RFI mm-hmm. because all you're doing is wasting everybody's time. Anyway. Yeah, when I was on the other side, we never did RFIs on paper. We just invited different vendors to just come and talk to us and have a conversation. And yeah. the, whole, the goal for the RFI was basically to make sure that the RFP was something you were actually going to get an answer on. Because you can put an RFP out there, request for a proposal, which nobody answers on, and then you spend a lot of time doing yeah. nothing, no no gain from it at all. The RFI sessions, the, the, the face-to-face meetings with the, custom, with the customers, with the providers of these technology data, whatever, it was basically meant to make sure that the RFP was something that would kind of be responded upon and that we actually could move ahead the whole thing. Indeed, indeed. But uh, anyway, these days it's different. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, rants about RFIs. And, RFIs. <laughs> um, and uh, finally, Metron. Lots of Metron. Um, Still exists. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Mike Schiebel has uh, has been over from the from the US. So he's the the, the guy that actually uh, was at the bank that implemented the OpenSock. Um, you know, initially, and is now sort of going down the metro route. Um, and you know, he's now at uh, at Hortonworks and driving a lot of the Metron um, strategy. And uh, so, yeah, some some really really continued good conversations um, around Metron. Yes, still very much a framework. Um, yes, sort of uh, um, has big plans. Um, but uh, it, what what I'm finding more interesting is the the conversations around um, NiFi um, and how that is sort of I mean, that's essentially the thing that powers Metron. That's the thing that provides the data in the first place. And when people start to see the the larger picture of of the the whole data ingestion framework and what it's able to do, um, yeah, lots of lights come on and and lots of uh, lots of interesting conversations. No, it's a more or less, I would say, typical IoT thing, right? Event streaming in, going through a machine learning, perhaps, or at least some kind of analytics thing to make flags go off or, uh, or not. 
Yeah, exactly. And I maybe do a call out to our listeners here. If you guys think uh, Metron is interesting enough to have a podcast episode on, let us know. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. If people want to hear about it, I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> Not you, somebody who knows something about it. Oh, <laughs> harsh. <laughs> but true. Well, maybe. Anyway, moving on. What have you been up to the last couple of weeks? Uh, me, I've actually been uh, getting my fingers dirty programming again. It's been uh, a while that I've been doing so much uh, actually developing of, uh, yeah, not finished products. But in my current role, I'm actually doing small hackathons and uh, POC kind of things where you actually have to develop a solution, not end-to-end, of course. I'm not developing as a consultant, but just really making small pieces of software that actually do the stuff I usually talk about only. <laughs> so kind of proof-of-concept type implementation. Yeah, That's- yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. basically just proving, but not just on paper, not just on a whiteboard, but actually also helping the customer developing it. So uh, last week I did a hackathon, a lab hack slash hackathon kind of thing where the customer redid my uh, development on their own uh, system so they could actually get their hands dirty as well on the technology, seeing how these things click together. Because on the one hand, it's easy to talk about. Uh, you put uh, an iFi here and have Storm there and an Event Hub there, and it all just works. Yeah, but how do you actually do all this? And of course, in my specific case, it's all in the cloud then. Yeah. Just having them have their hands on the tools, dragging and dropping and clicking and typing and just showing how it works. And we had a very nice atmosphere. It was actually a late night session from, uh, I think it was started at five and lasted till nine in the evening or something. And everyone was very happy and energetic and just hacking away. It was a lot of fun. Nice. I had a lot of fun with it, apparently, because we're doing another one on IoT soon. So, <laughs> <laughs> Obviously very happy with it then. Uh, well, they were, and I certainly am, because again, I'm a, I, used, I used to be a developer, that's what I learned in school, so going back a bit to that, it's really, uh, ah, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Good, good. And apart from that, I've actually been uh, doing the good work for our uh, main topic, because I've been promoting Emily, but a, customer, a couple of customers too, who actually are having the problem we've been uh, discussing in the last episode, and we'll be continuing in this, uh, the main section of this episode, the getting your machine learning uh, model up in your production flow. So if, uh, the, this podcast really is helping me do my job, so I hope a lot, of, a lot of listeners have the same advantage there. Excellent. Excellent news. And that's about all for me. All right. Anything else from you? That's it from me. Okay, then let's finish this first section for this podcast. After the music in the main section of the podcast, uh, we will have the second part of the interview we did a couple of weeks ago with Holland and Mikhail, the driving forces behind the Emily project. And this time they will be going to a little more technical details on how the Emily project actually works internally, how the Emily frames are working and things like that. The pipeline, you'll get more information on that. And also offer some hints and tips on how you actually can deploy their uh, tool in your environment. So we hope you find it interesting. Enjoy it. second part of this interview with uh, Mikhail and Holin on MLeap. So in this second part, we're going to go more in depth, a bit more technical deep dive, if you like. So uh, Holin, Mikhail, who wants to take the uh, word here to explain how MLeap works below the covers? And one question I had in mind was, do you really need data frames or can you work with all the versions of Spark? Um, sure. So uh, actually, I, I will start 
by answering that question that you have. No, you do not need data frames. We have something called a leap frame. Mm -hmm. And uh, the leap frame is pretty much just a lightweight version of the data frame. It only supports a few data types. It supports doubles, strings, arrays of strings, and uh, vectors, which are pretty much all of the data structures that you need for uh, ML pipelines to function. And if we encounter something that uh, requires new data structures, it's fairly easy to add them to the leap frames. But uh, to answer your question, it works with any version of Spark past 1.5, I think. We might not support 1.5 because there are some things missing in ML pipelines, but it should support every version of Spark moving forward, and it should be independent from the version of Spark that you're using as much as possible. Oh, that's nice. It's always good to have a one less dependency. Yeah, we're going to have our own versioning system for MLEAP that is, uh, you know, it'll loosely uh, follow along with Spark, but it can also uh, move along separately from Spark. So uh, we should have backwards compatibility for any models that you train and all that. That's, that's very nice. But so if I understand correctly, the uh, ML pipeline is not an abstraction of the data frame pi pipeline. Uh, the ML pipeline is not an abstraction of the data frame pipeline. Uh, the ML pipeline is just providing transformers, which essentially take a data frame in and output a new data frame with a column that they've generated from some of the data in your data frame. And MLEAP does exactly the same thing. It just operates on different data structures. So instead of operating on a Spark data frame with a Spark transformer, um, you have an MLEAP transformer that's transforming uh, this thing that we call the, a leap frame. So it's the same exact paradigm, just different data structures. And in MLEAP, ML do you still have the RDDs below the whole thing, or is that totally gone away? So <clears throat> the leap frame is just an interface, and we have uh, currently we have two different implementations of that interface. We have the local leap frame, which is just an array-backed uh, leap frame. And then we also have an RDD-backed leap frame in case you want to take your MLEAP models and execute them uh, against a, a distributed context. So you don't lose that ability to run your, leap, your uh, MLEAP transformers against uh, Spark context. It's just no longer required, pretty much. Okay, so you still added that functionality in there. Is that something you needed at a certain point, or a leftover? Is that something that's going to disappear, or...? Because you're working on MLEAP to make it as lean as possible, to make it as fast as possible. Adding this stuff in, I would think, makes things a bit uh, heavier, a little slower. Sure. So um, we're very conscious of making everything lightweight. So the way that we've broken MLEAP down is you have um, four modules, the core module, the runtime module, the Spark integration model, and our, our uh, serialization module. Mm -hmm. So if you don't need the ability to execute your... Um, MLEAP transformers against a Spark RDD, then you only need to depend on the runtime module. But if you do need to execute it against the distributed context, then you're going to have to include the Spark integration module. And that is a heavier weight module, but at least you know that um, you're getting into that if you decide to use it. Now, just me being ignorant here, uh, for scoring, uh, to, for training a model, you want to distribute it over the whole data set and everything. You need the big clusters for that if you have a lot of data. But for scoring, I would imagine, I'm asking myself, do you really need a distributed uh, setup for that? 
Um, only if you have a big data set, right? Like if you're doing one-off requests, then there's no reason to have a distributed data set. In fact, that would be very detrimental to to what you're trying to accomplish. So if you're building out an API server, just depend on mLeap runtime. You don't have any Spark dependencies then. But if you have a huge data set, then depend on mLeap Spark, and now you can execute your mLeap transformers against a distributed data frame. So with big data set, you have to look more into the batch uh, scoring of huge amounts of uh, events. That's right, yep. So yeah, because the demonstration you gave on uh, Hadoop Summit was particularly a API that had uh, real time scoring going on. I didn't know you could actually have a, a batch uh, interface with that as well. That's interesting. Yeah, so so actually we we did show the uh, the batch mode scoring with Mleap. Um, there was one point I don't know if you recall or not, but there was one point where we showed um, a, a data frame, and what we had done is we showed the predicted value that you get from the actual Spark transformer pipeline. Uh-huh. And right next to it, we showed the predicted value that you get from the mLeap transformer pipeline. And we were actually using this uh, functionality that is built into mLeap that lets you um, execute your mLeap transformers against Spark data frames in order to show you that data. Okay. Yeah, I saw that, but I didn't make the connection there. <laughs> Thanks for clearing that up for me. <laughs> Just making sure Dave doesn't think I was sleeping. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, I think that was one thing important thing that I think we need to show everybody. Right, is you want the results coming back from you know mLeap to be the same ones that Spark would return with your predict method. I think that's that's a very key QA uh, QA method uh, that you need to prove to everybody that you know that your technology is not doing something weird and it's going to uh, returning completely different results. Yeah, predictability is very important, of course. Yeah. Once you get a difference, you have to start looking, and you, you can't lose trust in the, in the method then, and then if you have to choose between the two, uh, help. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, okay, so uh, do you want to talk a bit more about the internals of MLEAP, or do you think you went deep enough? Um, I guess I can talk a little bit more uh, about uh, the Spark integration points and what's going on there. Uh-huh. Um so essentially, there's two ways that you can sort of export your MLEAP models. And the way that we've been doing it so far, because it's the way that we started with, is essentially taking your Spark transformers and converting them in the JVM to uh, MLEAP transformers, and then from there, serializing them. Um, and so sort of the way that that process works is that you're working with vanilla Spark, building out Spark estimators and uh, using your Spark estimators to build uh, a Spark model. And then you're just calling a simple conversion function that takes that Spark model and converts it to an mLeap model. And then from there, you're probably taking your mLeap model and serializing it to a file. Um, So uh, that's the way that we've been doing it. The way that we want to let you do it is to get rid of that step of first converting to an mLeap model and just directly serialize from the Spark model um, and then load it up in an mLeap model somewhere else. Uh, The other thing that I was talking about is the ability to execute these mLeap pipelines against the Spark data frames. And the way that that works is essentially you're converting a Spark data frame into a leap frame that's backed by a Spark RDD executing your mLeap transformers against that Spark leap frame. Uh, you take the Spark, uh, the transformed Spark leap frame, and then you convert it back into a Spark data frame. 
And uh, that all happens under the hood. Again, it's only one line of code if you want to do that. And all the conversions and everything are handled for you. Okay. Now, you say it's one line of code, but if I recall correctly, you did have kind of a, a configuration file on the on the on display at the Hadoop Summit, also specifically for the specific uh, machine learning algorithm you wanted to use. Um, there was... Uh, there was one file that I showed that was an actual leap frame that was just a JSON file. Mm-hmm. That was a serialized uh, leap frame or something. That was a that was a serialized leap frame. That's correct, but um, that's not actually involved in this process. This just all happens within the JVM. No serialization required. Okay. So uh, yeah, maybe a quick question: uh, Where can I download it from? You guys have a website I can download from? Yeah, we have it up on <laughs> GitHub. It's uh, github.com slash truecar slash mleap. Uh, is a truecar going to stay in there? Because I noticed that in the class name as well, it says truecar.com.mleap and then the rest of it. Is that uh, truecar sponsoring a bit? Uh, yeah, I mean, the project started at truecar mm-hmm. and uh, you know I continue to work for truecar and, and manage the project and everything. But like you were saying, if this becomes an Apache project or... Um, or something like that, then uh, the namespace can change. It's not, it's not uh, tied to TrueCar, I don't think. Well, it's nice that they actually uh, sponsor you to keep developing this. For sure, yeah. It's uh, one way the open source community can uh, live as it does, right? By having some uh, commercial people believing in it and uh, letting people do this stuff. Somebody needs to support it, you know? Okay, so uh, I download it from the website. I install it on my cluster then. How does that work? I mean, if I just explain to somebody who hasn't used it what the steps are. So the easiest way to get up and running with it is to use the Spark package. Um, so we actually have MLeap, uh, we have a, an MLeap Spark package that includes all of the serialization, the Spark modules, everything that you need to get started. And it's literally just maybe... Uh, 30 characters that you add when you uh, fire up your Spark shell or your uh, Spark submit job in order to include MLeap with with your project. Um, For more production level uh, stuff where you're actually building out assembly jars and using Spark submit and everything, um, we have MLeap up on Maven Central and we have stable releases of it up there that you can use and uh, that, that's how I would uh, use it for production-level code. Uh, when you say uh, we have different uh, versions of uh, MLeap, how production-ready is it today? I understand that TrueCar is using it in production for a while already. Yeah, I mean, if we have the transformers supported that you are using, then it should be ready to use in production. Um, we, we haven't found any issues with it yet, so... I would go ahead and and try it out. Um, Definitely be cautious with it because it's a young project Mm -hmm. and all that. But uh, I would go ahead and try it. Okay. What's the last last version number you have? Uh, I think we're up to 0.1.3 for stable and 0.1.4 for our snapshot version. Yeah. Talk about young. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Hey, Um, hey, hey. It's just a version number, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just love how open source projects can be totally mature at version 0.1. something and commercial products need at least version 10 before it doesn't fall over anymore. <laughs> uh, and actually, then they still fall over anyway, but they just charge you twice as much. True. <laughs> well, we uh, charge you nothing, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's not going to change. It's going to remain an open source project, won't it? 
MLEAP will definitely remain an open source project. We want this to be uh, uh, available to the community so anyone can use it and contribute to it. That's very, very nice of you guys. I know a lot of people are going to be happy. Um, any gotchas, any things you say, this is a problem at the moment we're working on, on the last release, or if I, is anything just hunkadori? Um, the only... Uh, I don't. I haven't found any problems with it yet, but you know, I'm only one use case. Um, I guess the biggest problem with it is that we need more people to adopt it and tell us what's wrong with it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, the more people the, use it, the more you will find bugs. That's true. Or exactly. Incompleteness. And we want that, right? We want people to say, "Hey, there's something slightly off about your um, standard scaler or something like that." There isn't anything off with it, but you know. That's, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so that's what I really want. And also, I think the other problem is just, um, and this is soon to not be a problem because we're we're training people up on MLEAP, is just um, getting more contributors to it. And uh, I've actually been going through with uh, three people and uh, showing them how to build out transformers and everything. And so hopefully we're going to see some more contributors to MLEAP in, in the near future. Mm -hmm. If people want to contact you guys or have problems with uh, the product or whatever, do they have a, a mailing list they can join? Or is this on the GitHub page itself? you have a form, a wiki or something? Um, I guess you could create a GitHub issue is definitely one way to do it. Um, you could email Mikhail or I directly, and we're very responsive. Um, like I said before, I've had... Uh, two or three people email me and say, hey, why isn't this transformer supported? And then uh, we're pretty quick about getting it supported. Um, so email is a good way. Um, that would definitely be nice to set up a mailing list, but I, I haven't thought about doing that yet. Yeah. Uh, it's also, if you go to Apache, you'll have at least five mailing lists, if I remember correctly. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> managing those things is a job in itself, I think. Um, uh, one question I had for myself really is if I'm going to use uh, MLEAP, the API server itself, uh, it has, if I remember correctly, you're using an embedded API, uh, HTTP server for that. So that HTTP server is just meant to be a demonstration of what you can do with it. And the, the code for it is available on, on GitHub. So you can take a look at it. It's based off of Aka HTTP. So it's bleeding edge, just like MLEAP. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, um, so you can see sort of how all the pieces fit together is really what I wanted to do with that. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, well, fifty percent. So I'll keep keep asking. Uh, at Truecar, are you using the 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 API to work with it, right, in production? Yes. Do you use the same uh, embedded HTTP server, or do you have something bigger, larger, different? At Truecar, we are going to be using JRuby as the actual serving component, and we're going to be integrating with, um, with Scala via JRuby. So, no, we don't, we don't use that code at TrueCar, though we have built out code that's very similar to it in some ways, in, in terms of it's based off of Aka HTTP, and it uses MLEAP. But uh, that's very rudimentary code that I put up on GitHub there. Uh, are you going to be sharing the good way of doing it then, or is that something you leave to the people to investigate themselves? Um, so actually, uh, there's a website that um, we've been putting together, Mikhail and I, for all of these projects that we've been working on. And on that website, there is a blog post where I go over how to build out excellent Aka HTTP servers and excellent Aka HTTP clients. And the website is combust.ml. And there's a link right there to go to the blog posts. 
And if you were to go to it right now, that would be the only blog post that you find, but it actually answers the exact question that you're asking right now. Yeah, I think it's a very important blog post because a lot of people will well, want to look at that. Yeah, so it's interesting. Akka has Akka and uh, Lightbend in general has incredible documentation for everything that they build, but there's not a whole lot of tutorials about how to fit all the pieces together. So this blog post is trying to fill that gap a little bit. Yeah, it's one thing I was looking at when I returned from the, from the summit just to see, okay, if I do this, I see how I've converted from the Spark model into an MLeap uh, pipeline, but now I want to productionize this and then an embedded HTTP server. I'm not entirely sure if that's what I want to do. So that was actually information I was really looking for. <laughs> so good to see there's a yep. blog post on that now. Um, the API server itself, how, uh, how would I say this? How heavy is it? Uh, do I need a totally big fleshed out server to run the API in production? Is that totally dependent on the uh, data sets you're going to run through it? How would you reply to that? Um, so I'll let Mikhail answer this, but my answer to that would be um, uh, uh, that we've been asked this question before, like, is, is there the functionality to do AB testing with the server that you've built? Um, is there logging available for feedback loops? Uh, you know, all these sort of features that people want out of a, a machine learning API server. And the, the demonstration server that I've given has none of that. It's very, literally it has one functionality and that is to transform uh, incoming leap frames. But we've definitely been asked this question quite a bit. Yeah, definitely. It also kind of goes back to your earlier question of um, are we going to be building out essentially like um, infrastructure around MLeap, right? Things that Holland mentioned, you know, the ability to dockerize, to be able to log, to have feedback loops, um, management of uh, how you define features, how researchers define features versus how you deploy them in production. Uh, that stuff is, uh, I think, where we're going to be shifting a lot of our focus to, you know, in the coming, you know, six to 12 months. Um, so that, you know, in the near future, hopefully, uh, if you want to deploy, uh, you know, a large scale or like a medium or even a small scale API server, um, it's, you know, going to be as simple as, you know, as a Docker image that you just spin up. Uh, and, you know, it can integrate with your MLeap models. Um, and you know, give you an API endpoint. Okay, perfect. So no reason not to install it. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, Dave, you have any other questions? I think uh, only other thing I was interested in is obviously you're a you know a relatively small uh, you know fast moving, um, fast evolving uh, project uh, with MLeap, uh, and you know you're you're coupling yourself to a. Um, you know, a juggernaut, a very fast-moving juggernaut like Spark, um, and uh, you know it, it's making some some astounding progresses, and things are marching on very very quickly. How have you have you managed to kind of keep things um, you know aligned with the the changes that are happening within Spark? Things like the API changes, and uh, as it's as Spark itself is evolving, and as ha- what what has that taught you along the way? Well, fortunately, um, ML, the ML pipelines are very young. They're only about, I don't know, six or seven months old since their initial release. So we've been able to get at it from the start. And the other thing is that we only deal with the execution, the scoring side of these models, right? So we don't have to worry about all the training code. And what I've found, at least, is that 
Um, a lot of the changes within Spark have to do with making the training more efficient, whereas the actual scoring models themselves are very stable and don't change very much. So the piece that we're trying to recreate out of Spark is actually one of the most stable pieces of, uh, of Spark MLlib right now, I think. So that's made it very easy to, to keep up uh, with it. Excellent. That's good to know. Yeah, I was kind of wondering if uh, any of the Hadoop distributors have contacted you guys and offered uh, to help with uh, keeping it all up to date. Because I, th- I think Emily is really filling a gap at the moment. Yeah, definitely. We, we've talked to um, the folks that are working on uh, on the ML pipelines, ML lib, quite a bit. Um, also, uh, Ram uh, just joined uh, just joined uh, Databricks recently, and he's really been kind of the person that introduced or has gotten the word out uh, about MLeap and kind of got us to, you know, the scene at the Spark Summit as well as the Hadoop Summit out in Dublin. Um, so there, there's, uh, you know, there's some dialogue going on between us and Databricks and the folks that are developing um, ML pipelines. Yeah, great. Just make sure you don't lose your identity, guys. Definitely. <laughs> Good. Uh, anything else uh, from Dave? No, nothing else from me. Really good. Uh, really good talking to you both. Really enjoyed the conversation. I think what you've got is uh, is definitely filling a a niche that that really needed uh, someone to focus on. So, looking forward to seeing where MLeap heads next. Do you guys uh, want to add something else we haven't touched on yet, which you think is important that people should know about? Yeah, I think one thing is uh, we do have uh, some Jupyter notebooks available on the demo site as well. Uh, so for you know for the more data science crowd, uh, you know who's used who's you know getting more used to notebooks, uh, if they want a you know a full walkthrough of how to load the data in Spark, you know from an Avro or a CSV file, how to train a model, how to uh, convert it to an MLleap. Uh, pipeline and then how to serialize and how to deploy it into an api server uh that's available all through a notebook and i think that's another very easy way to kind of start to understand uh what the heck mleap is doing yeah excellent excellent resource uh the only thing that i'd want to add is uh come see our talk at spark summit west on uh, june 7th definitely do i've heard these guys talk at hadoop summit and i definitely worth the time Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) No, thank you guys. Thanks for being here. So I think we're going to close the interview with this. Uh, Thank you very much, Mikhail and Holland, for taking time out and uh, being here at the podcast. It's very useful for us to have you here. And I think Emily really deserves the attention uh, you guys can give it. Well, thank you so much for having us and uh, helping to give us some attention to it. No problem. And if anybody out there has free time, these people need your help. So apply for a job and start programming and adding (laughs) extra algorithms to the whole project, right? That's right. (laughs) Anyway, thank you very much, guys. And uh, we will talk again in the future, I hope. Definitely. Keep in touch. Okay. Thank you. Welcome back. In this last section of the podcast, as always, we answer questions we receive from you, our listeners. If you have a question you would like us to answer on the podcast, please do send us an email to podcast at roaringelephant.org or use our Hadoopcast Twitter handle. 
That's a Twitter handler. You can also go to our website, www.roaringelephant.org, where you can find a feedback form and more information about our podcast. So, going into the questions for this episode, the first question uh, is going to be for you. I'm going to switch the order anyway. Question from a listener, is Zeppelin multi-tenant right now? Okay, so there's a short answer to this and there's a longer answer to this. Give me the short Um, one first. Okay, short answer, no. Good. Next. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the longer answer um, is it will be very soon. So the first stages of multi-tenancy are arriving kind of August time, I believe, is the current time frame. Um, But there are a couple of things that you can do um, to essentially – hack around it and get around the problem uh, and uh, this came up in a in a sort of session that I was running and I thought it was quite interesting so I thought it might be something worth sharing for those people that are absolutely desperate to get their hands on Zeppelin today so um, options to uh, get around the fact that Zeppelin today isn't multi-tenant basically revolve around spin up multiple Zeppelin instances one per user now obviously that it, it is it is uh, wasteful of resources and it's not ideal and that sort of thing, but it does allow you uh, to get around the initial kind of multi-tenancy problems. Now, the way to do this is twofold. Um, you can either have an option where you really just spin up the Zeppelin instance on um, you know on a local VM or something like that, uh, and obviously all the credentials need to be in place for it to be able to talk to your cluster. Uh, once that's in place, obviously you've got your own local Zeppelin and it can then go ahead and, and talk uh, across to the cluster. And uh, so your multi-tenancy is in, in effect delivered by the fact that each person has their own uh, Zeppelin instance. Um, another option is to actually run it uh, on your local machine if that's something you can do. Um, and the nice thing about doing it that way is that... Uh, um, potentially you can uh, also run this then on Kerberized clusters as well um, because you can just do a, you know, uh, do a K in it or similar on your, uh, on your local machine and then you can connect to a Kerberized cluster uh, with that token uh, gaining you access. So that's, um, that was kind of something, something that came up that I thought was quite interesting. Lots of people are eager to start using Zeppelin right now even though um, not quite everything is in place yet, but uh, you know, if you've got a relatively small number of users, you know, maybe eight to ten users, uh, that might be a way to to get around it in the short term. Yeah, but so you're talking VMs or own workstations. Uh, I would assume there's also a way to just have Ze- multiple Zeppelins running on one server and have different ports to to connect to. Yeah, absolutely. You could, you could spin up a separate. Zeppelin server, if you like, which just had a bunch of instances that people uh, had uh, virtual IPs to connect to or whatever. Uh, yeah, but then you need intelligence on the on the user side to know which port he has to connect to. Of course, or, or which I mean, not I mean, you could either do it ports, or you could uh, you could spin up virtual interfaces on the machine, so you give each a personal IP address. Yeah. I was thinking of using Nox, uh, actually. I haven't been using Nox for the last couple of months, so I have no idea what the current state of it is. Maybe you know more about it. But the whole thing about Nox is having a proxy server in between, so you could just disguise whatever you're using on the on the back end, on the, ser- on the Zeppelin server end, and just 
have URLs uh, exposed uh, by Knox, or is that not possible? I think that should be possible. I don't think that will work out of the box. I think you'll need to create your own sort of um, mapping for that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, but Knox allows for that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's just, I think it's a better solution if it works because of the security issues. Having yeah. uh, people connecting from their own workstations—that's always something that. I know most enterprises don't really like a lot. Yeah. Spinning up a lot of VMs, that'll also mean putting up a lot of firewall rules and everything. And if you can yeah. have a central thing like Nox doing that for you, that might be a nice uh, way of looking at it. Yeah, very true. The next question, which uh, I'm now going to ask you, which should have been the first question, is are there any other technologies that allow machine learning models to be exposed as web APIs? Uh, so really kind of following on from been hearing about the great work that the MLeap team have been doing, uh, what are the other options out there? Yeah, and I can actually put that in there because I have an answer for it. <laughs> and basically, uh, it's just like you have a short and a long answer. Uh, if you're asking for something that is the same thing for a Spark environment, then nope, I don't know any. But not all machine learning is done through Spark. And if actually you're having smaller data sets, uh, you can actually have something on Azure. And of course, I know a lot about Azure, or I should know a lot about Azure at this point in time. And the Azure ML uh, SaaS offering actually has a... Uh, interface where you can use either a notebook, a Jupyter notebook, to just write your R code. I'm saying R, not Spark here. Or you can use the uh, Cortana ML uh, front-end to just do with a drag-and-drop. You can build your stuff there, and those tools actually have a little button there to expose that uh, model as an API, and it works very nicely, actually. The reason I know this works very nicely is because for the hackathons I talked about at the beginning of the show, we actually use these tools to make it work. So the whole concept is definitely not something that's uh, coming out of the blue, but on the Spark uh, technology part, then the MLeap, as far as I know, is the only one that can actually do this. The difference between Spark and the things on Azure at the moment is basically tied down to uh, data set size. The uh, uh, Cortana ML things and everything, they're pretty good, but for small data sets, if you have more than uh, I don't know, 10 or 20 gigabytes, you will get into memory problems. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah, it's a bit of the flexibility versus functionality uh, uh, balancing, right? So, yeah. Uh, but uh, that's something, if you're just trying to do something with this and have a web app that consumes your model, that's actually a nice way to just uh, test it out and uh, get your feedback. Sounds good. So, in that case, anything else from you, Jan? Nope, that's it for me. All right. That's about all the time we have for today, so I hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode. Um, until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find out more information about the podcast. Send us your questions and, uh, you know, take a look at us on iTunes if you are tethered and uh, chained to that platform. Uh, and please think about giving us a review. Um, you deserve it and we deserve it too. Um, if you think that you have an interesting question for us, then please contact us via the feedback form on our website or even via email to podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, questions, comments, criticisms or other feedback. My name's Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to speaking to you in two weeks' time. Goodbye. Goodbye.